0: That's great to see all those shoeboxes. Thank you, kids. Thank you, Ben, to everybody who brought a shoebox. And as Ben said, it's not too late. And even come November, we are still the collection hub for this area. So even in November, if you didn't bring a box or maybe the, the Spirit moves you to do it, yet another one, we'll still collect those in, not on a Sunday like this, but, but you can bring those in uh, to the church office or downstairs during that collection week. So we are finally at the end of Jude, hallelujah, (laughs) getting ready to move on to something new next week. And in these final two verses of Jude we're going to look at, uh, these are probably two of the most beloved, well-known verses uh, in this short letter. You know, if we think back to the beginning of this letter, Jude begins by drawing our attention to the ungodly teachers that we should avoid, that we should beware of. Uh, And then he gave us instructions to us, to the Beloved, on how exactly we are to contend for the faith worth fighting for. Uh, Jude gave us those instructions, and then he, in today's passage, points us upward to God. So it's kind of been outward at the ungodly, inward to ourselves. Now we're going to look upward to God, the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us as faultless before His glorious presence. Now, if you remember back in verse 3 of this letter... Uh, Jude tells us that this wasn't the letter he originally wanted to write. Originally he wanted to write about the common salvation that we share together in Jesus. But he felt that it was more urgent to confront the falsehoods that were creeping into the churches. And so Jude wrote the letter that we have, where he, again, explains the challenges before us and then calls us to contend for the faith. And Jude spent a lot of time, we spent several sermons where he's pulling back the curtain on these ungodly false teachers, revealing them for who they actually are. They're irreverent and immoral and rebellious. And then he explains the judgment that awaits each and every one of them unless they turn in repentance and true faith to Jesus. And then last week we finally got to the the meat of it where Jude equips us with a battle plan for contending for the faith to remember God's Word, especially those words of warning about the false teachers, to remain in God's love by building ourselves up in the true faith and praying in the Spirit and waiting with expectation for the return of Jesus and then to rescue those who are in danger of false teachings or of sin, to show mercy on them but with caution so we don't fall prey to those same lies and sins. And now that we reach the end, we see that Jude... He couldn't resist that initial desire. And so here in these last two verses, he closes with a focus on that common salvation that we share in Jesus Christ. And so in these last two verses, Jude helps us to meditate on the awesome power and beauty of the hope that we have in Jesus. So let's look at Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, without blemish and with great joy. To God, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You again for the reading of Your Word. We thank You for the words You inspired Jude to write, Lord, and how they have challenged us and they've encouraged us, Lord, and we have felt equipped and challenged to fight for the faith, the true faith that You have handed down once for all to us, God. May we be good stewards of Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So these last two verses here are what you call a doxology. Now, most New Testament letters end with a benediction. And so the difference is that a benediction is sort of words of blessing spoken on the recipients, but a doxology is word of blessing spoken to God. So the focus of this letter, again, ends with praise to God, but also an encouragement for us. As we think about who God is and what God has done, it encourages us to endure the attacks of the ungodly with hope, to not give up and keeping ourselves grounded in God's love. And it reminds us that those who truly belong to the Lord, those who are contending for the true and holy faith, the beloved, that are called, loved, and kept by God, that we are kept by God to the end. We will endure to the end. As I said last week, we definitely have a role to play, but ultimately it is God who calls us and it is God who keeps us. It is God who saves us and it is God who sustains us and secures us to the end. So let's think first here when when he says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, he tells us that we are kept secure by God's power. We're kept secure by God's power. Remember, keep is one of uh, the key words in Jude's letter. We've mentioned that several times. In Jude 3, we are the called, loved, and kept... For Jesus Christ, God calls us to salvation, He loves us as His children, and He keeps us secure for eternal life to Christ Jesus. Jude then uses that same word to talk about how the fallen angels failed to keep their proper positions and roles. They refused to keep themselves in the sphere God had given them, and so Jesus will keep them in chains for judgment. So Jesus keeps the fallen angels for judgment, but Jesus keeps the beloved... For salvation. In verse 21 last week, we are commanded to keep ourselves in God's love, but here in verse 24, we are kept, we are protected from stumbling by God. Now again, as I explained last week, this is not a contradiction, right? It shows the tension, it shows the balance, and the fact that God in that initial moment of salvation, it is God who justifies us, from our sins and someday it will be God who consummates our salvation in saving us from the very presence of sin and glorifying us in heaven. But in between, there is a role that we play as we partner with God's Holy Spirit in what we call sanctification, in our spiritual growth. So we keep ourselves in God's love because we have been kept by God in His love. Does that make sense? Or as one preacher said, He gives us the grace so that we desire to keep ourselves in God's love. We call this the doctrine of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints or the assurance of our salvation. And it's a doctrine that's found throughout the Bible. Jesus prayed the night He was betrayed in John 17. He said, Holy Father, protect them by Your name that You have given Me so they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by Your name that You have given Me I guarded them, and not one of them was lost. So we see here that the Father and the Son, they protect us in His name. And then earlier in John 10, 28-30, Jesus declared, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." This is one of the greatest passages that speaks to the assurance of our salvation that once we are saved by God's grace through faith, we are always saved because there's nothing you can do to lose something you did nothing to receive, right? We do nothing to deserve our salvation. We can do nothing to lose our salvation. It's a gift. And once you belong to Jesus, no one can snatch you out of His hand. You can't lose something that's eternal, right? By the nature of it being forever means it never ends. It is through God's power that we are kept secure. The Greek word there when he says, now to him who is able, that Greek word is the word dunamai. It's the same word we get our English words dynamite from or dynamic from. It speaks to God's power that He is able, that He has the great ability to keep us from something and to keep us for something. First, He keeps us from stumbling. God protects us by His power from stumbling. Now, this is not a reference to sinlessness. You know, there are some people that teach that once you're a Christian, you should become sinless, that you should you should attain perfection in this life. That's a gross misinterpretation of passages Like this one. Yes, this Greek word can refer to a single sinful act, but it can also refer to an irrevocable falling away and becoming lost forever. The Bible never teaches that we can lose our salvation, but it also never teaches that we can attain sinlessness this side of heaven. God never promises that when you come to faith in Christ, you'll never sin again, only that your sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are declared righteous because the sinless Son of God, He ascribes His righteousness to us. And then, we spend the rest of our lives in that process of sanctification, of spiritual growth, of becoming more and more like Jesus, of growing in our personal righteousness. But perfection only comes when we are finally saved from the very presence of sin, either when we step from this life into heaven or when Christ comes back to call us all home. From then on, yes, we will experience that sinless state. In James 2.10, James says, whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So if we sin in any one way, we're guilty of breaking all the law. But then he goes on in 3.2 to say that we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature and able to control the whole body. So what Jude is saying here, by using that word stumble, he's saying that God alone is able to keep His people from falling away, from His grace, from falling away, from our faith. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to stand as righteous before His judgment seat despite our sins, despite our faults and failings. And this is a promise that God will keep our feet from stumbling in that way, in that way in which we we just completely uh, lose faith and walk away. In, in Psalm fifty-six, thirteen, it says, "For you rescued me from death, even my feet from stumbling, to walk before God in the light of life." In sixty-six nine, He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. And then in the twenty-third psalm, there's a kind of a, a positive spin uh, on this. He says, "He restores my soul; He leads me along the right paths, for His name's sake." In God's power, He keeps us from stumbling so that He can present us as blameless standing before His throne. Now these are just different sides of the same coin. If we do not fall away in this life, then we are able to stand in the next as thoughtless, as blameless before God's throne. That word "faultless" a literal translation is without blemish. We will stand before God's throne without blemish blemish like the lambs in Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be spotless without blemish. Jesus was our spotless lamb. He was the sacrifice without the blemish of sin that was offered up for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an un." and spotless lamb. It is through His precious blood that we will be presented before God as unblemished and spotless. Paul says in Ephesians, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. And then he says He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. This confirms that Jude wasn't suggesting that believers could attain perfection in this life, but that on the last day, the Lord will make His children blameless when they stand before Him. On that day, God completes the saving work that He began in us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. He said, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to guard, to keep, to protect and to preserve what has been entrusted unto me until that day, meaning His salvation. That it is God who will guard and protect and keep us in His grace. And then Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. These are great promises that should encourage us when we don't feel very cross when we struggle with fear or doubt or anxiety, when we wrestle with those sins that seem to win far too often in our lives, that it's not by our power, it's by His power that we are kept from stumbling and that we can stand before Him faultless. And that brings us to the second truth. Not only is it by God's great power, but we are also kept secure by God's great promise. His promise. His promise. You know, it's one thing to consider that we'll stand blameless in God's presence. It's another when we realize we'll experience His glory and great joy. We will stand thoughtless before His throne in His glory, Jude says. I'm reminded of how the book of Exodus ends. Okay, let's go back to the Old Testament, way back, right? In the book of Exodus, the Israelites have been freed from Egyptian slavery. They're at Mount Sinai. They've camped out there for a while. Moses has been up on the mountain. God has given him not just the Ten Commandments, but the entirety of the Old Testament law. And especially there in the end of Exodus, he gives him the instructions for building the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it may not be riveting reading if you're reading the book of Exodus, but there's so much rich symbolism there. And then Moses and the Israelites, they construct the tabernacle. They construct the Ark of the Covenant and all the utensils and all the objects that go in it exactly as God instructs. This tabernacle is where God intends to dwell in the midst of His people Israel. It's where Moses and Aaron the priest are able to go and meet with God and stand in His glorious presence. But when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, the last few verses it says, "...the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle." But Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting Because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now think about this. That's the purpose for this. God's glory comes down so Moses can come into it. Moses, who's been in God's presence and received the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel that God liberated from Egypt with all these mighty wonders, and yet Moses is not able to walk into the glorious presence of God. Why? Because we can't stand before God in our sin. We can only stand in His glory when we are faultless, blameless, and without blemish. Our sinfulness keeps us from being in His holiness and glory because His glory would consume us, would destroy us. So what's the solution? Well, there's a reason the book of Leviticus comes after Exodus. And I know you're like, oh yes, more riveting reading." But again, there's some powerful stuff in Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, God establishes the means for His sinful people to come into His holy presence. And it's by the shedding of blood. The blood of a spotless sacrifice. In fact, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word that Jude uses for faultless, that Hebrew equivalent is found 18 times in the book of Leviticus. Through the sacrifice of a perfect offering, one that is without blemish, one that is spotless, we are able to stand faultless before the throne of God. And so, when we come to Numbers, we go from Exodus... The tabernacle, the glory of God, Moses can't enter. We come to Leviticus, here's the sacrificial system, here's the way in which sinful people can come before a holy God. So you come to the next book, the very first verse of Numbers, it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So Jude is telling us that when we put our trust in the perfect, spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God, we can stand blameless without fault before the Father, secure enough in our salvation to enter into His glory with boldness. Or as Hebrews 4.16 says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We will stand in His glory. And secondly, we will share in His joy. Now, this word for joy is only found five times in the New Testament, and it always carries with it the idea of a public expression of joy, of, of a delight, an exuberance. This isn't, this isn't the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. This is more like the, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, stomp your feet, shout amen. That's the kind of joy we're talking about here. It's the word used in Luke 1.44, where Mary, pregnant with Jesus, visits her cousin Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, and Elizabeth says that the baby in her womb leapt with joy at hearing her voice. It's the same word used earlier when angel Gabriel tells Mary there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. And it's the word we see in Acts 2.46 describing the earliest days of the church, saying that every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and broke bread from house to house, They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. That's the kind of joy we need to experience today. That's the kind of joy that should characterize us as Christians, an exuberance, a delight, a celebration that we can't contain. Paul David Tripp wrote, if your theology doesn't produce sturdy, lasting, vibrant, and unshakable joy, there's something wrong with your theology, or at least how you live it out. And if we can have that kind of joy here and now, if we can have that kind of exuberance, that vibrant joy here and now, just imagine what it will be like when we do stand in His glorious presence. Amen? Imagine standing together in the celebration of joy around His throne. There's a reason in our New Testament reading there in Revelation 19 that it talks about it like a marriage. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And Revelation 19 truly gives us a glimpse of this joy four times. There is the shout, Hallelujah. And then in verse 7, it tells us, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. What a promise to hope in and look forward to. And you know what? It has nothing to do with what we accomplish or deserve. It all begins and ends in God. We are secure by God's power. We are secured by God's promise. And third, we are secure in God's person. See, Jude doesn't wait for that eternal future. He starts some joyful praising right here in this last verse of his letter. He praises the person of God because it is only through Him that we are secure. It is only through Him that we are saved. He is our Savior and He is our Lord. Look what he says. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you remember, looking back through this letter, he accuses the false teachers of being like the ancient Israelites in rejecting Jesus as their Savior. How did they do that? Because they refused to acknowledge Him as their Lord. Time and again, Jude accuses these ungodly people of being rebellious. They rebel against the sovereignty of God. You know, people, even today, people have a tendency to want the benefits of salvation without the demands. Right? I mean, mean, we love the idea of forgiveness of our sins, promise of eternal life in heaven, joy and peace and purposefulness now, but submission, obedience, sacrifice, selfless service, putting others before ourselves, that doesn't sound like much fun. We want the Savior without the Lord. It doesn't work that way. You can't consider yourself a true believer in Jesus Christ if you aren't willing to acknowledge Him as your Lord, if you aren't willing to give Him the sole allegiance of your heart. In fact, in the Roman road, Romans 10.9, a verse we use to talk about how, how to become a Christian, it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. Not Savior, Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. In other words, if you want to have Jesus as your Savior, you first must acknowledge Jesus as your Lord. Second Corinthians 5.15, Paul says that He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We are saved to live for Him. It is by Jesus and for Jesus that we are called, loved, and kept. We are kept secure by God's power, by His promise in His person, and finally, we are kept secure for God's praise. Jude ends with a fourfold acknowledgement of the greatness and awesomeness of God who is our Lord and Savior. And it's important for us to look at each of these very briefly this morning because Jude is not just charging us to recognize these truths about God, but to praise God for these things and to build our lives on these truths as a foundation. So he tells us first that we are to praise Him for His glory. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the glory of God. The Greek word here is doxa. It's the word from which we get doxology. So a doxology is words of glory. Glory is the honor rightly ascribed to God for who He is and what He does. It's not so much something God has. Glory is what God is. In fact, James Merritt explains, glory is an attribute that is inherent and intrinsic to God. Glory is essential to God as light to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You do not make the sun light, it is light. You do not make the sky blue, it is blue. You do not make the water wet. It is wet. Likewise, you do not make God glorious. God is glorious. We don't really give God glory. We acknowledge the glory that God already has. So since God does the calling, the saving, the loving, and the preserving, He alone receives all the glory and praise. And it's a praise that all of creation will someday give to Him. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, for this reason God highly exalted Him, meaning Jesus, and gave Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jim Shaddix writes in his Jude commentary, glory is indeed the outward manifestation of the inner essence and character of our God. It is what He is and we will spend eternity extolling Him because of His glorious goodness. We praise Him for His glory. Secondly, kind of seems a little similar. These go hand in hand. We praise Him for His majesty. Psalm 8 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or magnificent is Your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with Your majesty. Majesty denotes our Lord's greatness. Greatness. How worthy he is of the honor he is due for who he is as the sovereign creator God. The Hebrew word used there in Psalm 8, 1 that can be translated majestic or magnificent has its root in the idea of a robe or a cloak of splendor that that a king might wrap around themselves. Majesty is the outward expression of God's innate glory. It's His greatness that are revealed throughout creation, through the heavens and the earth. We see the majesty of our God. So we praise Him for His glory and His majesty. Third, we praise Him for His power. Now, this is a different Greek word than dunamai. This word specifically refers to God's sovereign control over all creation. That God is all-powerful, He's omnipotent, He's capable of doing anything that's consistent with His character. Unlike us, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't need a break. He doesn't need to catch His breath. He's not limited by gravity or time or space in any way. There are no laws of energy that God has to abide by. He is all-powerful. And we praise Him for His power. And finally, we praise Him for His authority. Authority. Now, authority is often mentioned alongside power in the Bible. Okay? Again, it's so of like glory and majesty are kind of two sides of the same coin. Power and authority go hand in hand because authority indicates the right to exercise the power you possess. Right? And if you don't have the power to carry out your will, do you really have the authority? Right? So they go hand in hand. So the focus on God's authority is about His right to exercise His power to accomplish His will. Let me give you an illustration. So a police officer has power. Okay? maybe physical strength, handcuffs, a fast patrol car with sirens on top, a gun. They have power. But without the authority of that badge or an arrest warrant or their jurisdiction, they don't have the authority to use their power whenever and however they want, right? Their power is limited by their authority. Well, listen, God not only has all power and strength, but He has the ultimate authority as the one and only God to exercise His power as He sees fit. All authority and all power belong to Him. Now catch this. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, Jesus says... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then what does He do? He turns around and in that authority, He commissions us and sends us out to share the good news and make disciples. And then in Acts 1, He tells us that we will receive His power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So He gives us a little bit of His authority and a little bit of His power to be His body and to carry out His ministry on this earth. Now, let that sink in for a minute. The God who has all power and authority, He gives us power and authority to make disciples in His name, to speak the truth of His Word, to share the good news of His grace. God's glory and majesty, His power and authority are infinite. Jude says they are before all time, they are now, and they are forever. He has always been glorious, majestic, powerful, and authoritative. And He always will be. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the only appropriate response to that truth for us is the last word in the book, and it's what? Amen. Amen. Amen means yes. That's right. It's true. I believe it. And that's the only reasonable response to this good news, this blessed truth of who God is and what He has done and all that He has promised to us. And the fact that He is able to do it. This morning, will you say amen to the good news? You know, the greatest praise you can give God, the greatest praise you can give Him is by trusting Him as your Lord and Savior by confessing with your mouth that He is your Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead so that you will be saved. Amen. Maybe this morning you need to experience the saving power of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you realize you, are, you have not answered that call of God to be the Beloved, to let Him keep you secure for eternal salvation because you've never trusted in Him. I invite you this morning as we stand and sing in a moment to come and to place your faith and trust in the One who is the spotless Lamb of God, who gave His life for you, that you might receive His righteousness. Would you do that today? Maybe you have done that, but you need to express that through baptism. Or maybe God is leading you and your family to come and to join this church, to say, this is the church I want to to praise God with. This is the church that I want to contend for the faith for. This is the church I want to partner with in rescuing those who are lost. God is leading me and my family to become a part of this church. Maybe God is calling you into ministry. Maybe He's placed some other burden on your heart. This altar is open. I'll be standing here. Now, I think as we end the letter of Jude, there's nothing better we can do than to stand in praise and worship and to go out in submission to His power and His authority to praise His majesty and His glory. Let's do that together. Would you stand with me? Father, we are so thankful for this journey. Through the book of Jude, we're thankful, Lord, for the challenge and the, the encouragement, for the equipping that you have given us through this, God. We stand in a world full of falsehood, of half truths, of people whose motivations and agendas are not of you. And they try to sway us, Lord, and they try to, to get us to give them their mon- our money or, or our allegiance and, and to follow their wickedness, God. Help us to stand on the truth of your word that never changes. Help us to be a church that contends for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. God, help us to remember Your Word, to remain in Your love, and to be a church that rescues those who are in the danger of sin. God, whatever Your Spirit is speaking to people's hearts today, may we be receptive and obedient to Your leading. In Jesus' name we pray.